Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning, and welcome to Teddy Talks for May 1st. 2020. We made it through April, all of us together, in our 26 days with the 26th president. Well, we're going to hit the reset button. If you count the days of May, excluding Sundays, well, we have 26 days ahead, including today. If you'd like to join me here for 26 days with the 26th president, your comments have been so kind that uh, I'm going to continue on. I hope you'll join. The, pro the program may modify uh, a bit to fit uh, your needs and some of the reality of the fact that here in Medora, we're getting ready uh, again to host people from throughout the state, the country, and the world. And uh, we're looking forward to a good time. Initiated today by a soft opening of the Bully Pulpit Golf Course, named for a phrase Theodore Roosevelt coined in the presidency in the White House and now very often meaning the kind of leadership that we look to from the president, the governor, the mayor, and uh, the Rough Riders Hotel, the Pizza Saloon, uh, when your calendar allows, come out and we'll do it well, we'll do it smart. This day, May 1st, of course, in history, uh, uh, one must remember the Battle of Manila Bay on this date in 1898, a tremendous uh, naval success for Admiral George Dewey and former Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, and and uh, also, of course, a, a day traditionally associated with the labor movement, the May Day parades. Uh, uh, when I was a little boy growing up, this was the day that the news would cover uh, the sighting of the uh, head of the Soviet Politburo, the general secretary in my day growing up, uh, uh, General Secretary Brezhnev, uh, looking down on the uh, on the big parades below in uh, in Red Square. Uh, parades throughout Europe, parades and mass, mass uh, meetings uh, throughout the United States very often on May Day during Theodore Roosevelt's time. And eventually a, 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 an administration two or three prior ha had created uh, Labor Day as a holiday in the United States, uh, moving it to uh, September and trying, I think, to distance it from the uh, uh, roots of the uh, socialist May Day celebrated. So happy May Day, however you want to celebrate it. Uh, I hope that you're uh, doing well. On this date in history, uh, a few birthdays to make note of, just briefly, uh, perhaps extrapolate on these characters a little bit later in the history of the country and the region. 
Uh, journalist Henry Damaris Lloyd, born this day in 1847, a decade older than Theodore Roosevelt, and one of the early uh, journalists of which we've spoken before, if you, if you use the phrase yellow journalism or muckraking journalism or investigative journalism, uh, this idea that, uh, uh, that a journalist could do a great deal to expose and perhaps uh, assist in the correcting of uh, the ills and evils of society. On this date in 1852, Calamity Jane, and uh, I should have noted her real last name, but I don't have it here. And she, of course, was famous uh, down in Deadwood, uh, of course, all Dakota Territory in Teddy's time. And and uh, I have just finished reading a bit of a uh, uh, cowboy diary recollections, and uh, it included stories of Calamity Jane in nearby Miles City, Montana. She now buried at Mount Moriah Cemetery, uh, the final resting place of Wild Bill Hickok and Seth Bullock, Theodore Roosevelt's dear friend. So hello to everybody down in the Black Hills. Happy birthday, Calamity Jane. My, how I imagine that might be celebrated in the uh, saloons and casinos in Deadwood, South Dakota. Happy birthday to General Mark Clark, born 1896, uh, uh, part of the uh, leadership of our effort in World War II, and uh, also remembering Dr. David Livingstone, uh, the Scottish-English missionary and explorer who died on this day in 1873. And of course, uh, we know that the uh, explorations of uh, Dr. Livingstone, his uh, work done, uh, that that was uh, part of the work on the shelf in the Roosevelt family home. Uh, this is uh, the origin of the phrase, uh, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, uh, when the uh, a gentleman found him uh, after years in Africa. A bit of a change of plans with regards to what was previously advertised for today's Teddy Talk. As I looked at the volume uh, to be uh, read, if I was indeed to read the three different pieces, uh, uh, the first piece, the report of the United States Civil Service Commission uh, on the investigation that Roosevelt, uh, as commissioner, had undertaken of political control in Baltimore on Election Day through the post office and the Customs House. Uh, not surprisingly for Roosevelt, it reads in great length and great detail, and combined with the possibility of speeches from the campaign trail in 1903 in Topeka and Kansas City, well, uh, the program certainly wasn't going to be uh, 26 minutes, and you know, some days we'll, maybe we'll have a Theodore Roosevelt marathon and we'll read for 26 hours. And some mornings you may have felt it was 26 hours, but uh, today, uh, reading eventually, we will retain The American Boy from uh, St. Nicholas Magazine. May 1st, 1900, its publication. But if I may, in honor of George Dewey, I haven't found anywhere else where the story is as well told as it is by Edmund Morris in his amazing Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. And, and I uh, share with you that this wonderful book changed my life, given to me by my sister-in-law, Cynthia Barlow, uh, one of the world's most talented uh, coaches and facilitators. And, and in our uh, long relationship, she had noticed that much like Theodore Roosevelt, I wanted to live a life of public service, to uh, reform uh, uh, that which needed reforming, to stand up for that which was right. Uh, I was doing so in the land of Lincoln, uh, where the governors make the license plates on a bipartisan basis. And uh, well, this book gave me an idea that maybe there was another way I could serve the country. And uh, Here's a bit of what Edmund Morris had to say in, in a few different sections in the run-up to the war. It's the summer of 1897, as you'll recall, in April, uh, Theodore Roosevelt had resigned his position as uh, police commissioner in New York City. 
uh, took up his duties uh, as a newly appointed assistant secretary of the Navy in the McKinley administration, the second McKinley administration under Secretary of the Navy uh, Long of Massachusetts. The uh, former governor, John Long, uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt did his best to encourage the secretary to take long vacations and extra weekends away from the nation's capital. It left Theodore Roosevelt as the acting secretary. Uh, the newspaper would soon begin reporting on the activities of the warm weather secretary, Mr. Roosevelt. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was a member of the uh, Metropolitan Club, uh, of the Cosmos Club. Uh, these gentlemen's clubs, I think, were a place where a great deal of the information exchange amongst the uh, higher levels of government and business uh, and uh, uh, culture and society were, were undertaken. And so to uh, pick up Edmund Morris in uh, the chapter of the Hot Weather Secretary, and this is from the summer of 1897. Roosevelt's Metropolitan Club circle widened in the early days of summer to include two new associates, Captain Leonard Wood, the president's assisting attending surgeon, and Commodore George Dewey, president of the Board of Inspection and Survey. He met the former at a dinner party early in June. When he met the latter is not known, but the name Dewey appears in his correspondence for the first time on the 28th of June. Both men were to play major roles in his life, and he in theirs. Wood was a doctor by profession and a soldier by choice. He excelled in both capacities. His looks were noble, his physical presence splendid as a Viking's. Tall, fair, lithe, and powerfully muscled, he walked with the slightly pigeon-toed stride of a born athlete and was forever compulsively kicking a football around an empty lot the leather thudding nearly flat as he drove it against the wall. Roosevelt, who as civil service commissioner had won fame as the most strenuous pedestrian in Washington, was impressed to discover that his newcomer could outpace and outclimb him with no sign of fatigue. Quote, he, walks my, he walked me off my legs, unquote, the assistant secretary told Lodge with some surprise. Ever the boy, he hero-worshipped Wood, although the doctor was two years his junior as a fighter of Apaches and a vanquisher of Geronimo. Wood's personality was clear, forceful, honest, and unassuming. Best of all, he was an ardent expansionist and could not stop talking about Cuba as a wound on the national conscience. Roosevelt decided that this quiet, charming man with excellent military connections, Wood was married to the niece of U.S. Army Commanding General Nelson A. Miles, must needs be cultivated. Little old Commodore Dewey was a total contrast. Nut brown, wiry, and vain, he was in his 60th year when Roosevelt befriended him. But the size of his personal ambition was an inverse proportion to his age and height. Over three decades of undistinguished peacetime service had not quenched his lust for battle, kindled as a lieutenant under Farragut in the Civil War. Now, with retirement only three years off, Dewey was forced to accept the fact that glory might never be his. Yet the Commodore still bore himself with fierce pride, immaculate and tailored uniform and polished high-end step boots. He was without doubt the smartest dresser in the Navy. Quote, it was said of him, unquote, wrote one reporter, quote, that the ceases of his trousers were as well-defined as his views on naval warfare, unquote. With his beaky nose and restless cage strut, Dewey looked like a resplendent killer falcon 
ready to bite through the wire if necessary to get at a likely prey. The Commodore had attracted Roosevelt's admiring attention as long ago as the Chilean crisis of 1891, when he voluntarily bought coal for his ship instead of waiting for official battle orders. Any officer whose instinct was to stoke up before a crisis at his own expense could be trusted in wartime. Like Wood, Dewey was a dedicated expansionist, lunching and dining daily at the Metropolitan Club. Like Wood, he was a man of action rather than thought. Roosevelt began to muse ways of giving him command of the Asiatic Squadron when Rear Admiral Fred V. McNair retired later in the year. In the meantime, their friendship ripened. Often on a sunny afternoon after work, they could be seen riding in Rock Creek Park together. Fast forward to uh, September of 1897, while Secretary Long was rusticating in New England. Had Long known what Roosevelt was up to on the eve of his return to Washington, he might have employed stronger terminology in an earlier statement he'd made about having confidence in their, his conservatism and uh, Roosevelt's enthusiasm uh, balancing. On Monday, September 27th, the acting secretary intercepted a letter from Senator William E. Chandler to Secretary Long recommending that Commodore John A. Howell be appointed Commander-in-Chief of the Asiatic Station, the very post Roosevelt wanted for Dewey. Howell, though senior, was in his opinion irresolute and extremely afraid of responsibility. The prospect of such an officer leading an attack upon Manila was too depressing to contemplate. With long due back the following morning, rapid action was necessary. Roosevelt sent an urgent appeal to Chandler. Before you commit yourself definitely to Commodore Howell, let me be clear on this and do it as a Roosevelt quotation. Roosevelt sent an urgent appeal to Chandler. Before you commit yourself definitely to Commodore Howell, I wish very much you would let me have a chance to talk to you. I shall, of course, give your letter at once to the secretary upon his return. Presumably, Senator Chandler could not be persuaded, for he withdrew neither his recommendation nor his letter. Throwing all caution to the winds, Roosevelt called in Dewey. Do you know any senators? The Commodore mentioned Redfield Proctor. Roosevelt was delighted, for Proctor had expansionist tendencies and was known to be influential with the president. Dewey must enlist his services at once. Senator Proctor obligingly went over to the White House and spoke to McKinley in behalf of the little Commodore. He might have made discreet reference to the fact that Roosevelt also favored Dewey. The president, who took little interest in naval affairs, accepted his advice without question and wrote a memorandum to Secretary Long requesting the appointment. The appointment. Long returned to the Navy Department on the 28th of September and was greatly annoyed to find what political intrigues had been going on in his absence. Tradition required that he appoint the senior officer. Besides, he personally favored Howell. But McKinley's memo could not be ignored, and so, to quote the sonorous words of Theodore Roosevelt, in a fortunate hour for the nation, Dewey was given command of the Asiatic Squadron. The secretary was still in an irritable mood when Dewey called to thank him and apologize for using the influence of Senator Proctor. It had been necessary, Dewey explained, to counteract Senator Chandler's recommendation of Howell. Quote uh, from Secretary Long, You are in error, Commodore, snapped Long. 
No influence has been brought to bear on behalf of anyone else, unquote. A few hours after Long, in turn, sent apologies to Dewey, it appeared that Senator Chandler had indeed recommended his rival, but the letter, quote, had arrived while he was absent from the office and while Mr. Roosevelt was acting secretary and had only just been brought to his attention, unquote. The culprit was serenely unrepentant about his delay in forwarding Senator Chandler's letter and saw nothing wrong in Dewey's enlistment of senatorial aid. From Roosevelt, a large leniency should be observed toward the man who uses influence only to get himself a place near the flashing of the guns. To uh, bring us closer to uh, uh, the action undertaken uh, on behalf of the nation, uh, this is uh, February 25th, 1898. Theodore Roosevelt, still in the service of the country as assistant secretary of the Navy, but this is 10 days after the blowing up of the battleship Maine, uh, a, uh, an action after which uh, Theodore Roosevelt immediately, in his official capacity as assistant secretary of the Navy, uh, claimed it was an act of Spanish treachery. Uh, this to balance the uh, front page headlines, uh, remember the Maine, uh, that were blaring throughout the country. Uh, to pick up uh, February 25th, it so happened that John D. Long was also feeling the strain that morning. Since his violent awakening on the night of the 16th, the secretary had been plagued with insomnia, along with various aches and pains, which he carefully noted in his diary. He had discovered uh, that relief was to be had in, quote, mechanical massage, unquote, a treatment whereby a Washington osteopath strapped him into an electrical contrivance that soothingly jiggled his stomach and legs. Long now felt the need of renewed treatment, so much so that around noon, he resolved to take the rest of the day off, leaving Roosevelt in charge of the department as acting secretary. The mechanical massage was most satisfactory, and the secretary proceeded to visit his corn doctor, after which he walked about the streets in an aimless way and finally headed for home unaware of the cablegram, even then winging halfway around the world. Here's the cable. Dewey, Hong Kong, order the squadron except the monarchy uh, to Hong Kong. Keep full of coal. In the event of declaration war Spain, your duty will be to see that the Spanish squadron does not leave the Asiatic coast. And then offensive operations in Philippine Islands. Keep Olympia until further orders. Roosevelt. This momentous message, which Dewey later described as the first step toward American conquest of the Philippines, was by no means the only order Roosevelt issued during his three or four hours as acting secretary. He sent similar instructions to keep full of coal to squadron commanders all over the world, and to make sure they got it, authorized the Navy's coal buying agents to purchase maximum stocks. He alerted European and South Atlantic stations to the possibility of war and designated strategic points where they were to rendezvous in the event of a declaration. He ordered huge supplies of reserve ammunition, requisitioned guns for a project auxiliary fleet, and summoned experts to testify on the firepower of the Vesuvius. He even sent demands to both houses of Congress for legislation authorizing the unlimited recruitment of seamen Having thus in a single afternoon placed the Navy in a state of such readiness it had not known since the Civil War, Roosevelt wrote a strictly confidential letter to warn 
Adjutant General Tillinghouse of the New York National Guard that the world situation was sufficiently threatening to warrant plans for statewide mobilization. Pray remember that in some shape I want to go. After work, he paid a courtesy call to Secretary Long. If he gave any report on his actions during the last four or five hours, it was of such masterly vagueness that no memorandum of the conversation appears in Long's diary. Yet something about Roosevelt's enthusiastic and loyal manner made the secretary uneasy. Quoting from his diary, If I have a good night tonight, I shall rather feel that I ought to be back in the department. Refreshed by splendid slumbers, the secretary hurried back to work the next morning, Saturday, the 26th of February. He would have gone whether he felt better or not. Quote, because during my short absence, I find that Roosevelt, in his precipitate way, has come very near causing more of an explosion than happened to the main. The very devil seemed to possess him yesterday afternoon. And now the culmination of this uh, precipitous uh, uh, Roosevelt. Late on the afternoon of the 1st of May, 1898, Americans were stunned to hear of a near incredible naval victory by an unfamiliar commander in an archipelago on the other side of the world, about 10,000 miles away from what they imagined to be the likely theater of naval operations. In seven hours of stately maneuvers off Manila, George Dewey had destroyed Spain's Asiatic squadron. Almost every enemy ship was sunk, deserted, or in flames. Not one American life had been lost, in contrast to 381 Spanish casualties. The victorious Commodore, who was promptly promoted to Rear Admiral, modestly ascribed his success to the, quote, ceaseless routine of hard work and preparation, unquote, demanded of him by the Navy Department. His government patron lost no time in taking due credit. You have made a name for the nation and the Navy and yourself, wrote Roosevelt on the 2nd of May. And I can say how pleased I am to think that I had any share in getting you the opportunity that you have used so well. Admiral Dewey aboard the uh, flagship, the USS Olympia, a, uh, a, an uh, armed cruiser. Uh, uh, it is now at the Seaport Independence Museum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, you can climb aboard the Olympia, uh, stand uh, in the uh, crow's nest, and, and uh, give out the order that Dewey gave to his uh, ship's commander that day. And uh, Gridley, you may fire when ready. Gridley gave the command, and the first uh, the first shots of the Battle of Manila Bay were shot this day, 1898. The American boy. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, of course, uh, after his participation in the war, comes back a war hero, is uh, given the Republican nomination, and narrowly defeats Van Wyck uh, for the governorship in the fall of 1898. He uh, uses the governorship not only to do the good work for the people of the Empire State, uh, but to have a national platform. Uh, there becomes a clamor for uh, the president or the uh, uh, for the governor to uh, uh, consider joining uh, President McKinley's re-election ticket after the death of Vice President Hobart. In any case, it's not surprising to find that Theodore Roosevelt, the author, uh, has something to say in the very popular St. Nicholas uh, magazine. Uh, a magazine devoted uh, to uh, children, 
probably read by a good deal of adults for fun, but it's a children's magazine meant for boys and girls. And so uh, consider that when uh, we even hear Theodore Roosevelt writing for children, but doing so with the expectation that they should be under, able to understand allusions to history and uh, the complex thought that comes through. It's not a dumbed down, extremely simplified sort of thing. And, well, here's the American boy to conclude our program here on May 1st. Of course, what we have a right to expect of the American boy is that he shall turn out to be a good American man. Now, the chances are strong that he won't be much of a man unless he is a good deal of a boy. He must not be a coward or a weakling, a bully, a shirk, or a prig. He must work hard and play hard. He must be clean-minded and clean-lived and able to hold his own under all circumstances and against all comers. It is only on these conditions that he will grow into the kind of American man of whom America can really be proud. There are always in life countless tendencies for good and for evil, and each succeeding generation sees some of these tendencies strengthened and some weakened. Nor is it by any means always, alas, that the tendencies for evil are weakened and those for good strengthened. But during the last few decades, there certainly have been some notable changes for good in boy life. The great growth in the love of athletic sports, for instance, while fraught with danger if it becomes one-sided and unhealthy, has beyond all question had an excellent effect in increased manliness. Forty or fifty years ago, the writer on American morals was sure to deploy the effeminacy and luxury of young Americans who were born of rich parents. The uh, boy who was well off then, especially in the big eastern cities, lived too luxuriously, took to billiards as his chief innocent recreation, and felt small shame in his inability to take part in rough pastimes and field sports. Nowadays, whatever other faults the son of rich parents may tend to develop, he is at least forced by the opinion of all his associates of his own age to bear himself well in manly exercises and to develop his body, and therefore, to a certain extent, his character in the rough sports which call for pluck, endurance, and physical address. Of course, boys who live under such fortunate conditions that they have to do either a good deal of outdoor work or a good deal of what, may, what might be called natural outdoor play do not need this athletic development. In the Civil War, the soldiers who came from the prairie and the backwoods and the rugged farms where stumps still dotted the clearings and who had learned to ride in their infancy, to shoot as soon as they could handle a rifle and to camp out whenever they got the chance, were better fitted for military work than any set of mere school or college athletes could possibly be. Moreover, to misestimate athletics is equally bad whether their importance is magnified or minimized. The Greeks were famous athletes, and as long as their athletic training had a normal place in their lives, it was a good thing. But it was a very bad thing when they kept up their athletic games while letting the stern qualities of soldiership and statesmanship sink into disuse. Some of the younger readers of this book will certainly sometime read the famous letters of the younger Pliny, a Roman who wrote with what seems to us a curiously modern touch in the first century of the present era. His correspondence with the Emperor Trajan is particularly interesting 
and not the least noteworthy thing in it is the tone of contempt with which he speaks of the Greek athletic sports, treating them as the diversions of an unwarlike people, which it was safe to encourage in order to keep the Greeks from turning into anything formidable. So at one time, the Persian kings had to forbid polo because soldiers neglected their proper duties for the fascinations of the game. We cannot expect the best work from soldiers who have carried to an unhealthy extreme the sports and pastimes which would be healthy if indulged in with moderation and have neglected to learn as they should the business of their profession. The soldier needs to know how to shoot and take cover and shift for himself, not to box or play football. There is, of course, always the risk of thus mistaking means for ends. Fox hunting is a first-class sport, but one of the most absurd things in real life is to note the bated breath with which certain excellent fox hunters otherwise of quite healthy minds speak of this admirable but not over-important pastime. They tend to make it almost as much of a fetish as in the last century the French and German nobles made the chase of the stag when they carried hunting and game preserving to a point which was ruinous to the national life. Fox hunting is very good as a pastime, but it is about as poor a business as can be followed by any man of intelligence. Certain writers about it are fond of quoting the anecdote of a fox hunter who, in the days of the English Civil War, was discovered pursuing his favorite sport just before a great battle between the Cavaliers and the Puritans, and right between their lines as they came together. These writers apparently consider it a merit in this man that when his country was in a death grapple, instead of taking arms and hurrying to the defense of the cause he believed right, he should placidly have gone about his usual sports. Of course, in reality, the chief serious use of fox hunting is to encourage manliness and vigor, and to keep men hardy, so that at need they can show themselves fit to take part in work or strife for their native land. When a man so far confuses ends and means as to think that fox hunting or polo or football or whatever else the sport may be is to be itself taken as the end instead of as the mere means of preparation to do work that counts when the time arises, when the occasion calls, why that man had better abandon sports altogether. No boy can afford to neglect his work, and with a boy, work as a rule means study. Of course, there are occasionally brilliant successes in life where the man has been worthless as a student when a boy. To take these exceptions as examples would be as unsafe as it would be to advocate blindness because some blind men have won undying honor by triumphing over their physical infirmity and accomplishing great results in the world. I am no advocate of senseless and excessive cramming in studies, but a boy should work and should work hard at his lessons in the first place for the sake of what he will learn and in the next place for the sake of the effect upon his own character of resolutely settling down to learn it. Shiftlessness, slackness, indifference in studying are almost certain to mean inability to get on in other walks of life. Of course, as a boy grows older, it is a good thing if he can shape his studies in the direction toward which he has a natural bent. But whether he can do this or not, he must put his whole heart into them. I do not believe in mischief doing in school hours, or in the kind of animal spirits that results in making bad scholars. And I believe that those boys who take part in rough, hard play outside of school will not find any need for horseplay in school. 
While they study, they should study just as hard as they play football in a match game. It is wise to obey the homely old adage, work while you work, play while you play. A boy needs both physical and moral courage. Neither can take the place of the other. When boys become men, they will find out that there are some soldiers very brave in the field who have proved timid and worthless as politicians, and some politicians who show an entire readiness to take chances and assume responsibilities in civil affairs, but who lack the fighting edge when opposed to physical danger. In each case, with soldiers and politicians alike, there is but half a virtue. The possession of the courage of the soldier does not excuse the lack of courage in the statesman, and even less does the possession of the courage of the statesman excuse shrinking on the field of battle. Now, this is all just as true of boys. A coward who will take a blow without returning it, it is as contemptible a creature as there can be. But after all, he is hardly as contemptible as the boy who dares not stand up for what he deems right against the sneers of his companions who are themselves wrong. Ridicule is one of the favorite weapons of wickedness, and it is sometimes incomprehensible how good and brave boys will be influenced for evil by the jeers of associates who have no one quality that calls for respect, but who affect to laugh at the very traits which ought to be peculiarly the cause for pride. There is no need to be a prig. There is no need for a boy to preach about his own good conduct and virtue. If he does, he will make himself offensive and ridiculous. But there is urgent need that he should practice decency, that he should be clean and straight, honest and truthful, gentle and tender, as well as brave. If he can once get to a proper understanding of things, he will have a far more hearty contempt for the boy who has begun a course of feeble dissipation, or who is untruthful, or mean, or dishonest, or cruel, than this boy and his fellows can possibly in return feel for him. The very fact that the boy should be manly and able to hold his own, that he should be ashamed to submit to bullying without instant retaliation, should in return make him abhor any form of bullying cruelty, or brutality. There are two delightful books, Thomas Hughes, Tom Brown at Rugby, and Aldrich's Story of a Bad Boy, which I hope every boy still reads. And I think American boys will always feel more in sympathy with Aldrich's story, because there is in it none of the fagging and the bullying which goes with fagging, the account of which and the acceptance of which always puzzle an American admirer of Tom Brown. But there is the same contrast between two stories of Kipling's. One called Captain's Courageous describes in the liveliest way just what a boy should be and do. The hero is painted in the beginning as the spoiled, overindulged child of wealthy parents of a type which we do sometimes unfortunately see, and than which there exist few things more objectionable on the face of the broad earth. This boy is afterward thrown on his own resources amid wholesome surroundings and is forced to work hard among boys and men who are real boys and real men doing real work. The effect is invaluable. On the other hand, if one wishes to find types of boys to be avoided with utter dislike, one will find them in another story by Kipling called Stalky and Company, a story which ought never to have been written for there is hardly a single form of meanness which it does not seem to extol, or of school mismanagement which it does not seem to applaud. Bullies do not make brave men, 
and boys or men of foul life cannot become good citizens, good Americans, until they change. Even after the change, scars will be left on their souls. The boy can best become a good man by being a good boy. Not a goody-goody boy, but just a plain good boy. I do not mean that he must love only the negative virtues. I mean he must love the positive virtues also. Good, in the largest sense, should include whatever is fine, straightforward, clean, brave, and manly. The best boys I know, the best men I know, are good at their studies or their business, fearless and stalwart, hated and feared by all that is wicked and depraved, incapable of submitting to wrongdoing, and equally incapable of being aught but tender to the weak and helpless. A healthy-minded boy should feel hearty contempt for the coward, and even more hearty indignation for the boy who bullies girls or small boys or tortures animals. One prime reason for abhorring cowards is because every good boy should have it in him to thrash the objectionable boy as the need arises. Of course, the effect that a thoroughly manly, thoroughly straight and upright boy can have upon the companions of his own age and upon those who are younger is incalculable. If he is not thoroughly manly, then they will not respect him, and his good qualities will count for but little. While, of course, if he is mean, cruel, or wicked, then his physical strength and force of mind merely make him so much more the objectionable member of society. He cannot do good work if he is not strong, and does not try with his whole heart and soul to count in any contest. And his strength will be a curse to himself and to everyone else if he does not have thorough command over himself and over his own evil passions, and if he does not use his strength on the side of decency, justice, and fair dealing. In short, in life, as in a football game, the principle to follow is hit the line hard, don't foul, and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. The American Boy by Governor Theodore Roosevelt, published this day, May, May 1st, 1890. Uh, to go back and catch up, uh, again, my thanks to the late Edmund Morris. The world is a poorer place for your passing a much richer place for what you wrote and and gave to us. What I wanted to uh, come back to was a little note at the conclusion of the uh, uh, of the uh, uh, the notes with regards to the start of the war. Uh, I may have uh, may have misplaced it. It's wonderfully told by Edmund Morris. It was that uh, part of his last actions before uh, heading off to San Antonio were to settle his affairs uh, here along the Little Missouri. He sold the rest of his cattle, and he uh, turned the uh, Elkhorn Ranch operation uh, over to Sylvain Ferris. Uh, just gifted whatever was left of the operation to Sylvain. When you come to the Badlands of North Dakota, when you come to visit Medora and Theodore Roosevelt National Park, uh, we'll go up and visit the Elkhorn Ranch, now a central part between the North and South units of Theodore Roosevelt National Park. We'll walk those bottomlands. There's not much left at all of the ranch, but some of the great foundation stones on which the foundation timbers were laid. But with a little imagination and with a little reading, perhaps a, a, ver a version in the field of Teddy Talks, uh, maybe we can transport ourselves back to the, uh, the days of the 1880s when young Theodore Roosevelt came here and uh, changed so greatly. 
Well, we're going to go out to the Bully Pulpit Golf Course today. We're going to be out and about around town in Medora. If you're watching locally, I hope this weekend you might be able to visit Medora and, and uh, we'll have a chance to say hello. I'll see you here tomorrow morning, May 2nd, uh, on uh, uh, Teddy Talks. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we're going to have the remarks of Theodore Roosevelt to the graduating class at the Naval Academy. Uh, so we are able to hear from President Roosevelt, May 2nd, 1902. And perhaps some other remarks from uh, 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 May of uh, 1902 to the Sounds of the American Revolution, remarks at uh, Gallaudet College in Washington, D.C., and later in 1907 on May 2nd, uh, remarks at the unveiling of the statue of George B. McClellan. I know we have some Civil War historians out amongst our viewership, so we're certainly going to hear Theodore Roosevelt on the legacy and the responsibilities given to us as a result of the Civil War. Thanks again for being here at Teddy Talks. Goodbye, good luck, hope to see you tomorrow morning. And I hope the month of May is one where indeed we see uh, spring uh, uh, doing its thing and in this country uh, doing what it's done every spring and summer, and that is uh, uh, coming back to life. All the best, take care.